As I said, uh, this morning we're going to return to our little mini-series here in the Psalms. We're beginning a new year here in January, and it is helpful for us as we look forward, as we evaluate things in the light of the last year, and as we look forward to the new year, to to think through some things. Since the the new year is a time of resolutions, many Christians, uh, one of the resolutions many Christians make is to read the Scriptures more. We have some Bible plans that Pastor John has printed out for you as a practical means and, and help. And uh, there is a, there's a tradition many people take to make New Year's resolutions. Now, some of us will say, well, I don't make New Year's resolutions because if I make a resolution, I'm definitely not going to fill it. But again, we, not, we need not have a cynical worldview. This is something that we said last time because we have a God. And so our God can help us to fulfill and to change so that we're not the same people that we were last year, this year. So many Christians at this time of year often look back at uh, the resolutions made by a very famous Christian, some of you may have heard of, the Puritan Jonathan Edwards. He was a famous revival preacher, was involved in the Great Awakening in the United States, which had an incredible effect Historians estimate that almost a third of the population of the United States was converted during this time of the great first Great Awakening. And Edwards, as a teenager, made some incredible New Year's resolutions. He made about 70. You can Google it and find them. They're actually really worth reading. And it's quite amazing that it was a teenager who made them. His resolution about the Bible, number 28, is quite straightforward. He said, resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Straightforward. To receive the benefits of the means of grace, you have to make an effort to get the Bible into your heart. Pastor John often says, the Holy Spirit doesn't read the Bible for you. He uses the reading of the scripture to apply it to our hearts. Now, Edwards has an interesting resolution with respect to prayer. This is his resolution number 29. He said, Resolved never to count that a prayer, nor to let that pass as a prayer, nor that as a petition of prayer, which is so made that I cannot hope that God will answer it, nor that as a confession, which I confess, which I cannot hope that God will accept. Uh, That's a little harder, isn't it? Basically, what Edwards was resolving to do was to pray meaningfully and expectantly. And that takes effort and engagement. In his book, Heaven Taken by Storm, another Puritan preacher, Thomas Watson, once said, Lifeless prayer is not prayer in the same way that a picture of a man is not a man. He went on to assert that to say a prayer is not to pray. Ascanius taught his parrot the Lord's Prayer. It is the violence and wrestling of the affections that make it a prayer, else it is no prayer. Now I think that prayer is actually one of the greatest privileges of the Christian life. But I also think and know from both personal experience and pastoral experience, that prayer is often one of the things that Christians most struggle to do. The question is, why do we struggle to do it? Edwards, one of the most brilliant and godly Christians, struggled enough with prayer that he had to resolve to work hard at it, to focus on it. And I honestly think that many Christians, if not most Christians, struggle with prayer on some levels. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that he had never written a book on prayer because of a sense of personal inadequacy in this area. I know sometimes when we have sermons on prayer, we come out with a feeling of guiltiness. Oh man, I'm not praying enough. I, I don't think I can do this. And we, we, we have some understanding of what we, we're supposed to do. But I think sometimes our prayers are anemic. Because we haven't necessarily been taught how to pray. And there is instruction, of course, in 
the Bible. And perhaps most of us are familiar with the instruction in the New Testament in, uh, in, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount when you have the, the Lord's Prayer. But I want to suggest to you, and I want to encourage you, as we've been going through these sermons in the Psalms, that the Psalms are actually a wonderful model because they are the recorded prayers of saints to assist us in our own prayer. And Psalm 5 helps us to approach the subject of prayer through the example of David. We have here in Psalm 5 a model of how to engage and receive the means of grace in our lives as Christians. If you've struggled with prayer, or if you're interested in what makes for effective prayer from a Christian perspective, Psalm 5 is very helpful. Now maybe this morning you're not a Christian, but you want to know how somehow Christians manage to persevere. What sustains them? The answer is found in the passage that we have before us. There are essentially five sections to this psalm that combine to give us an approach to prayer that can help us to continue to engage in this vital Christian means of grace. Jesus famously said that we struggle because we do not ask. This psalm is a model of how to approach and worship our God. I agree with the, uh, the theologian and pastor James Boyce who said that Psalm 5 is sort of like a Lord's Prayer instruction, a generic uh, instruction of prayer in the Old Testament. We're going to look at this psalm this morning under five headings. First of all, we're going to see the definition of prayer in verses 1 to 3. Secondly, we will see the subject of prayer in verses 4 to 6. We will see the effectiveness of prayer in verse 7. We will see the petitions of prayer in verses 8 to 10. And the comforts of prayer in verses 11 and 12. And don't worry, we will reiterate those as we go along. But the definition, the subject, the effectiveness, the petitions, and the comforts of prayer as God has given to us. Let's look first of all then at the definition of prayer. What what is prayer? Well, this is a valid is really a valid question for Christians to ask. And in fact, the disciples asked this of Jesus. In Luke 11, verse 1, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Prayer isn't just something that we naturally uh, imbue. There, there is a sense in which we cry out to God, and we don't need to be taught how to pray, to pray uh, to God and ask for salvation. You just need to know your need and cry out to Him. But there is something to being taught how to pray. And Jesus provides instruction. And I think the first two verses here of Psalm 5 also teach us to pray. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. If you want a simple definition of what prayer is, it's coming to God coming to God. The best posture for prayer is to realize that we need help coming to God. That's what's going on here in verse 1 and 2. David is coming to God. The first first verse here begins literally, uh, if we were to do this, if we were to translate this literally a little awkwardly, it says, with my words give ear is the word order here. If we were to translate this according to the Hebrew word order here, we would see, my words give ear. And this indicates that David begins this psalm by stressing the importance of talking back to God. My words give ear. My words give ear. And that is really what prayer is. It's a relational dialogue between the creator of the world who speaks both through the scriptures and through the creation itself. And we, in prayer, speak back to him. Now it's interesting who David directs us to. He directs his prayer to God. Now this is, doesn't seem to be a very radical thing. Because God is the one who can affect change. But unfortunately, we have seen a defection from this. We see in the Roman Catholic Church, if you open a Roman Catholic prayer book, 
you will see that the first listing of prayers are addressed to Peter and to Paul. And a long list of beings often considered more approachable than God himself. The cult of Mary rose up in part because Jesus was regarded as judge. That's a proper understanding of Jesus, but the way that Jesus came into the world, according to John 3.16, is as a savior. And then John 17 says that he will come as he didn't come to judge the world, but he will come ultimately to judge the world. But Catholicism has twisted this and has basically presented God as Jesus' judge. And so many Catholics are afraid to petition Jesus because they, they feel under his judgment. So they, they petition Mary. It's nowhere in the scriptures. Martin Luther, before he was converted, some of you know the story of how he was converted in part. He was on, on, the, on the road uh, and it was a terrible storm and there was a, a lightning flash and he cried out, St. Anne, save me! If you save me, I'll become a monk! Right? St. Anne is the mother of Mary because some Catholics felt that Mary was, as queen of heaven, in their view, that she was too unapproachable. So, how do you get in with Mary? Well, you get in with her mother, Anne. So you go to Anne. And that was something that the Luther's family would worship. They would worship um, St. Anne. Now, of course, this is all a distortion. Because we don't see prayers in the Bible to Mary, to Peter, to Paul, to Anne. We see sermon, we see prayers to God. And that's what David does. He addresses God. Now, David is not talking to a stranger there, some God that he knows nothing of. He is speaking to his king, to his Lord. And notice again, when we see those L-O-R-D in capital letters, he is addressing the covenant name of God. Give ear to my words, Yahweh. Yahweh. The covenant-keeping God. The name that God gave when Moses came before him at the burning bush. It is the name of God's covenant. It reminds every Israelite who heard Yahweh, they remembered God's faithfulness to His people through all generations, taking them out of the land of Egypt, preserving them through the desert, and bringing them to the promised land. When David invokes this name, this is not some impersonal God. It is a covenant God. And it invokes all of His covenant promises. Yahweh has brought David into a relationship with Him by His redeeming grace. And on this basis, there is a foundation for prayer. But it's interesting to see what kind of prayer this is. We see that even from David's own description here, that it's both spoken words and groaning. Give ear to my words. Oh Lord, consider my groaning. Oh, right? He groans. Now, does this mean that we ought to add groaning into our prayers? No. This is, this is a comprehensive understanding of God. God, when you come into, our, into His presence, He knows us fully, through and through. And there are times where we can express ourselves verbally, and there are some times where we cannot. Perhaps because of our grief, perhaps because of our pain or the complexity. So we weep sometimes. We groan. What does this, what does this mean ultimately? Well, it's both verbal and subverbal. When do we groan? Groan when we're in pain. Or we can't quite express our thoughts or hearts. And the amazing thing is, as David approaches, he expects God to understand it. He has such a knowledge of that. You ever tried to share your heart with someone and they just don't get it? It's like you're just trying to share your heart and they're like over their head. Now my wife knows me very well and sometimes she can read the subtext. She knows what's going on just by looking at my face. But sometimes even she is not infallible. Sometimes she misreads me. But God never does. God never does. He knows us. David may not be able to express himself, but he still expects God to get it. It's almost as if he knows Romans 8, 26, before it's written, 
hundreds of years later. This is what Romans 8.26 says. Likewise, the Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. This is our God. Brothers and sisters, if you know our God, this is the God that you come to. This is the God that you come and worship before. What a kind and gracious God He is. And David is crying out to God in verse 2. There's an urgency here in this prayer. Again, we're not sure what the context is. Perhaps it has to do with his son's rebellion, as we talked about last time, but we just don't know. It's not provided for us. But there's just something that's making him desperate. And he knows that God is sovereign and that he will use whatever means he needs to bring him to us. One of the reasons why we experience difficulties and challenges in our lives is one of the the means and reasons is that God uses those things to draw us closer to himself. We cry out to God. And that includes hardship. That includes sadness. Even depression and anxiety. All these things should be something that shows us our need for God. We're not created as independent beings. We're created in the image of God to be dependent upon God. And there is no one else or nothing else that can ultimately satisfy us. Now the words that that David uses here in verse 1, he uses consider. And that can also be translated as discern. Discern my words. Discernment conveys a thoughtful response and engagement. And just as it's important for us to engage with God, the implication is that David expects that God will listen to us. If you say to someone, discern my words, you're expecting them to listen and understand. And that's David's expectation here. And that's one of the wonderful things. We can expect that God listens to us. Yet despite all the urgency of the situation, we see that David comes to prayer with prepared words. Look at what verse 3 says. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And watch. It is a prepared sacrifice. That's what his prayer is. It's a prepared sacrifice of words. The verb used here in verse 3 means to set in order, to arrange, to set in rows, to line up something. It's used, for example, in the book of Leviticus in verse chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, of the priest arranging the wood on the altar fire and arranging the chunks of the sacrificial animal on the altar. It's used in Leviticus 24, verse 8, to describe the arranging of the showbread in two rows of six loaves each on the tabernacle table. And what's the point? The point is clear. It's an orderly verb. And I think the the, the, the principle here is that David is arranging his prayer. The priests arrange a sacrifice. They lay out the wood and they start the fire. David here organizes and orders his prayer. He's preparing it. Now, I'm not saying that we don't just have spontaneous, that that we we just abandon spontaneous prayer. Sometimes our prayer are very short. We have those little arrow prayers. Lord, help me in the situation. But I want to suggest sometimes we don't think enough about prayer. We often slip into cliches in our prayer. We just want to thank you. We're really glad to be here. There's these little filler phrases that we have. And they're not necessarily wrong. They're not necessarily sinful. But if we look at the instruction of the scriptures, and we look at this this prayer that David makes here, it's very structured and very well thought off, despite the fact that it's an urgent situation. God is engaging seriously with a serious God. He's careful. And I think it's helpful for us 
to likewise plan our prayers. I think prayer is best coupled with reading the scriptures. As we read the scriptures, and as we discern what's being said of them, it's good for us to reflect them back, to, to pray them back to God. As you're reading the scriptures, let it inform your prayers. Let it be the fodder, the fuel for your fire. Pray the promises of God back to him. As you read in the Old Testament, delight in the grace of God to save sinners and put your sin before God and ask for his grace. There are various means that can be very helpful to us on a very practical level. Prayer journals can be very helpful to re record and relate. Sometimes we think better by writing things down than praying about them. It's not a bad thing as you read your scriptures in the morning to take mental notes or even physical notes of things you need to pray about as you read God's word. In this context here, spontaneity is not treasured. Make some notes. Praise God for. Things to pray for. Things that convict you. Things that I need to confess. That things that challenge your heart with the word. And ask God to keep his promises to us. I often will prepare my prayers. Uh, and I know Pastor John does as well. As he comes and, and as we intercede on behalf of the church. But we also ought to pray meaningfully and thoughtfully in our own prayer times. There are various aids that we can use to do this. I, I often use a resource uh, that's by Matthew Henry. It's the, his book on prayer. And it's not a, a book of what to do and everything else. It's just a listing of Bible verses arranged in terms of their uses in prayer for adoration, for confession, and everything else. I would encourage you to, to read it. It's a very useful and practical arrangement. You can get it for free at matthewhenry.org on the internet. It's also helpful to read the Valley of Vision and other prayers that you can read. But the point of this is really that we approach prayer thoughtfully, that we're intentional. Because otherwise, we are missing out on some of the joy of prayer. Again, I am not saying that there are not times where you, you just cry out to God in your anguish and your anger. I'm just saying that as a regular practice and as a discipline, as a spiritual discipline, this is helpful to us. If you feel that your prayer life is rather anemic, there are ways that we can address it. And the scripture is helpful for us. Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, do we not miss very much of the sweetness and efficacy of prayer by a want of careful meditation before it and of hopeful expectation after it? We too often rush into the presence of God without forethought or humility. We are like men who present themselves before a king without a petition. And what wonder is it that we often miss the end of prayer? And I think just on a practical note, when we pray, the time when we pray, if we're, if we're meditating, is um, emphasized as well. It's interesting here that he begins, in, there's repetition here, that in verse 3, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And I think that this is a good application of this, is to encourage us to begin our day with prayer and worship. In my pastoral experience, one of the reasons I've encountered for why I struggle and why other people struggle with consistency in Bible reading and prayer, in part, is the time of day that they do it. It's easiest and best, I think, to begin your day with prayer. Now, you may begin your day really early. I would say just begin it a little bit earlier. Go to bed. Plan. Organize yourself so that you can do this. It's important that we equip ourselves spiritually as we go into the day. You wouldn't think of getting into your car and driving away without putting on your seatbelt. At least I hope you wouldn't. Right? Statistics show that that's a rather foolish thing to do. We do it almost automatically. And I think, brothers and sisters, we should treat prayer like that at the beginning of our day. It is our seatbelt. It is something that grounds us, secures us as we go into the day. And of course, it's not something that we should just do in the morning. I find sometimes, though, that at night, my prayers are less 
how can I put it, alert, tired at the end of the day. One of the challenges with doing your devotions at night is uh, you may be one of those that are very, very alert and very active. But generally speaking, the natural human rhythm is that we're tired. But I think it's important that you eat pray. One of my own personal New Year's resolutions is this very simple one, to pray every night with my wife. It could be as short as a couple minutes, or it could be longer. But it is important to do that. And if we do this, it's important that we consider the context here as well, because we preached on Psalm 4 last Sunday night. And look at what it says in verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Yahweh, make me dwell in safety. It's a great discipline and a great help and encouragement to the Christian to begin our day and end our day with prayer. And it's important even throughout the day to to pray to the Lord, but you may not have the freedom to do so if you're laboring or working, but to set aside some time at both ends, the bookends of the day, it's helpful. I love how Spurgeon puts it, prayer is the key of the day and the lock of the night. Now David's attitude as he approaches God is he's expecting a meaningful approach to God. He expects God to hear him and he expects God to change something. Either him or his circumstances. And we must pray with likewise with faith. We really struggle to pray when we don't see immediate results, do we? But God has called us to pray. To be persistent in prayer. One of my favorite uh, examples of this is uh, George Mueller. Mueller was a, uh, he, he ran orphanages, he did much for the Lord. And it, he prayed every day for two of his friends to be saved. He prayed every day for 60 years. 60 years. One of those men was saved the last sermon he ever preached before he died. The other one was saved a year after he died. But God is gracious, isn't he? Even when we lack faith for prayer. I love the story in Acts 12. Some of you will know it. The Apostle Peter has been arrested and put into jail. And just like if something like that happened today, what would the church do? they get together for a prayer meeting. So here they are, praying for God to open the doors and to, 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 to free Peter from, from jail. And what does God do? He sends an angel to do it. And Peter comes, comes to the, the, the door where they're all praying, and he, he knocks. And Rhoda, the servant girl, goes. She doesn't believe it. Peter's there. The very answer to their prayer. So she runs back in and she tells them, Peter's here, your prayers have been answered. And they were like, hallelujah, praise the Lord. No. They were like, what? No, that can't be. And they didn't believe it until they saw it. Right? Aren't we sometimes like that? Have you ever prayed for something? And then been amazed that God did and acted according to his grace and favor. I confess to you, when I first entered the ministry, I would witness to certain individuals. I'd pray with them. And then I'd go home to my wife and say, Oh, I just don't think so-and-so is ever going to be converted. I said that three times. Three times those people were converted. I don't say that anymore. God taught me. God humbled me. It is His Spirit. Works in the hardest cases to accomplish amazing things. He is a gracious and merciful God. And David could address him because he knew that God answered prayer. Even doubting Thomas, who doubted until Jesus said, put your, put your hand right in here, Thomas, into my side, put it in, into, my, into my hands. Thomas's response was, my Lord and my God. David knew God's truth. 
So we have here the definition of prayer. It's thoughtfully coming to God and pouring out our praises and our petitions and words and even groanings, expecting that He is there, He will listen, and He will respond. Maybe not in our time, but according to His wisdom, providence, and timing. And that's why we pray in Jesus' name. When we as Christians end our prayer in Jesus' name, it's not just some formula. We are praying through our personal relationship. Jesus is the mediator between God, the holy God, and sinful man. And it gives us confidence to approach him. John 16, verse 23 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Lord in my name, he will give it to you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God will save your family member? Maybe that family member that's so opposed to the gospel? God can. And He may. And what are the means that He brings about salvation? One of the things that He has foreordained in, in advance is our prayers as a means of accomplishing His purpose. So our prayers have a part in God's eternal plan. We've seen the definition of prayer. Let's look secondly, and a little bit more briefly, at verses 4 to 6. The subject of prayer. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. We see the, the subject of prayer. What is the subject of David's prayer? You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Now the subject of David's prayer is an interesting one. And it's something that we struggle to have as the subject of our prayers, isn't it? We really want prayer to be about us. We really want prayer to be about our needs and our situation. We want to get right to the list of the petitions that we have to bring before God. But what do we see David doing here? David, in prayer, first and foremost, worships God. He worships God. This is the biblical model. Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the biblical model that we see even in the old and in the new. We want, though, to be honest, to get, the, get to the part of the prayer that's like, give us today our daily bread. Right? We want to get there. But if that's our only our prayer, no wonder it's anemic and hard for us. It's repetitive. Well, the reason why God has given us His Word and revealed Himself to us is so that we will worship Him. I think the model of prayer that many of us are familiar with is the Acts model. Right? Ever, some people heard of the Acts model of prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, then supplication, right? Tacked on to the end. Adoration. Tend to skip over that. But if you look at the way that David orders his prayer here in Psalm 5, just look at it. Where does his supplication come? Where does his first prayer request come? Verse 8. Verse 8. More than half the prayer David has here for us is reflecting, meditating, adoring, worshiping God. All of his prayer to this point has been ordering his praises. Now it has a reason for you are not a God who delights. David knows what God is like. And that's why he praises him. Now it's interesting because it's not generic praise. David does have petitions. He is facing evildoers. So what does he focus on as he approaches God in his attributes? What does he focus on? His requests relate to the attributes that he is celebrating earlier in the prayer. In verses 4 to 6, he praises God's attribute in relation to his future requests. For you are not a God 
who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. David here praises God's hatred of wicked men. He delights in God's truthfulness and holiness, even as he prepares to ask God in verses 8 to 10 to defeat his wicked, deceptive, and lying enemies, which he hates. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? This is not a tame God. This is not a little pet that David is, 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 is approaching. This is a holy God. And quite frankly, this passage is an important one for us to, to reflect on the true nature of God. You've heard perhaps the saying, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. But look at what the scripture says. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So what about the Bible verse that says that God hates the sin but loves the sinner? Guess what? It doesn't exist. It's not in the scriptures. Where does that quote come from, anyway? Well, in modern times, that quote does not have a Christian origin. It's actually a quote from Mahatma Gandhi, who said, Hate the sin and not the sinner, though very easy to understand, is rarely practiced. And that is the, why the poison of hatred spreads in the world. So a common phrase, you even probably may have heard sermons preached on. It is not biblical, brothers and sisters. Now, the point here is not to talk about the doctrine of election. And I don't want you to go and substitute Psalm 5.5 for John 3.16 in your evangelistic approach. Right? That's not the point of this text. This is not speaking specifically. It does speak to a reality. It does speak to the need for the cross of Jesus Christ. Because, brothers and sisters, without that, without the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you and I are under the wrath of God. You and I stand condemned. David stands condemned. Evildoer, David was. Evildoer, we are. We are sinners follow. But the amazing thing about the cross of Jesus Christ is that Jesus himself stood in our place. He bore the wrath of God. He propitiated. He turned it away. But we must not soft pedal what the scriptures say here. The scriptures do not say God hates the sin and loves the sinner. No. As R.C. Sproul has once said, God does not send sin to hell. He sends the sinner to hell. And he only does so because he is just. But he is also merciful. Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way. He says, verses 5 and 6 sort of blow up the myth about God hating sin yet loving the sinner. He does not hate the evil done but evildoers in verse 5. He doesn't merely detest bloodthirsty deeds, but bloodthirsty men in verse 6. What holy, praiseworthy hatred. He says, you do not pray to a bland blob. Yahweh has a certain character. And because David knows that character, knows what Yahweh loves and what he hates, he has real hope that he will come to his rescue. When we talk about the gospel, we say it is not adequate to say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Right? It's not adequate. That may be true, but it may not be true. Right? 
We can't have the good news without the bad news. The bad news is that you're a sinner and yet you're under the wrath of God if you do not know Him this morning. The good news is that the gospel is offered to you in Jesus Christ. And we need to balance. We need to have a balanced approach. We need to have the fullness of Scripture as we look at these things. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that they should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That is a reflection of the character of God. God hates the evildoer, but He is patient. And he sends Jesus Christ not to judge the world first, but he sends Jesus Christ to provide a way of salvation. Romans 5 verse 8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this can inform our prayers, can't it? David here is praying about a situation where evil is being done to him. And he is reflecting on that situation, but he's organizing and ordering his prayer, and he's recalling the promises and the character of God in his adoration, which is connected to his petition. And I would encourage you, as you consider the burdens on your hearts, Consider it pure as well. God is our Savior and our help. He is the antidote to sin. So as we seek to address sin in the world and in ourselves, we need to contrast it properly with the wonder and power and holiness of our God. He is always the most relevant subject of our prayer because that very thing necessitates prayer. The very thing that necessitates prayer is sin. And sin can only be cured by the Savior who is God in Christ Jesus. Jesus is our hope in prayer. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That's why through Him we utter our amen to God for His glory. So the definition of prayer is to thoughtfully go to God, ordering our requests and even groans with God Himself as our subject. He is the focus of our prayers. His attributes are the foil and the answer to sin and darkness. But in verse 7, we come thirdly, to the effectiveness of prayer. We've seen the definition. We've seen the subject. Now the effectiveness of prayer. How do we get what we want from God? Right? It's stated very boldly. Boldly. How do we get answers to our prayers? What is the secret sauce to get God to answer us? I've come to know this thing that adds something to food here in Barbados. It's called Delish. I don't know if you guys are familiar, you're probably well familiar with this, but we had flying fish. Flying fish is nice, but with Delish, it's delightful. Right? Delish. Delicious. And we all sort of want this secret sauce. We want to know how do we make our prayers effectual? After all, we are sinners first, aren't we? God hates sinners. Yes, He does. But He is a God of grace. And that's what we see so clearly here in verse 7. What is the secret sauce? But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love. Uh Uh-oh, we know what this is, right? Last week, what's that word that we learned? Chesed. That's the exact word here. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. That's the basis. It's not David's moral character. No. Evildoer would apply to him. 
He stole another man's wife, committed adultery, murdered the husband, and had many other casualties. He lied about it. He went around self-righteously after it until Nathan came to him and told him that effective story about the rich man who stole the poor man's lamb. David gets incensed and Nathan says, You are the man! David has great conviction of his sin. And he cries out in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David knows that it is not on the basis of his righteousness that he comes to God. David rightly deserves the wrath of God. David rightly deserves the hatred of God. But the basis for effective prayer is not something in us. It's something in God. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, I just ask you, would you find it hard to love and to trust David after you saw him do what he did to Uriah and to Bathsheba and to the people of Israel? I think you would. I think you would. I think you would be desirous of shutting him out entirely. How could you do such a wicked thing? But thankfully, you and I are not God. And David knows it. It is the abundance of your chesed. Through the abundance of your chesed will I enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. This is what we need for prayer to work. There are all kinds of books that are written out there. There's a, even a, a, a revival of medieval um, mysticism and, and even a, a paganism in this new thing where, where, where people walk the labyrinth and there's this whole, whole sorts of thing. If you walk the labyrinth, then you'll have more effective prayer. That's nonsense. Nonsense. The basis of effective prayer is not in doing it the technique right. The basis for effective prayer is God's chesed. His abundant love. He is gracious to us. He is merciful to us. And that's why we cry out to Him. And that's why David cries out to Him on the basis of His abundant love. His steadfast, never giving up, never failing, always and forever love. A love that is greater than human love. A supernatural, chesed love. And David here comes to the holy temple. He says, I will bow down toward your holy temple. In the Old Testament, this is what they did. They would pray. Daniel did this. He would pray towards the temple because that was the appointed means of grace in the Old Testament. Temple worship. But Jesus, you remember what Jesus did when he came? He scandalized the Israelites. And he said, in three days, this will be torn down and raised up again. And what he was referring to is that he is ultimately the temple. He is the sacrifice. He is the meeting place between God and man. He is the mediator. He's the means by which we come into his presence. So we don't pray towards Jerusalem anymore. We pray towards Jesus Christ, our God, our Savior. And the gospel makes this rule real. Jesus is the answer. He is our Passover lamb. He was sacrificed on the cross in order that we who are unholy might be sanctified, might be set apart, might be made holy by his blood covering a multitude of our sins. And we have to understand that this this version, there's a, there's a, a misunderstanding of God in the Bible. Many people will say, well, God is a God of wrath in the Old Testament, and God is a God of grace in the New Testament. But even as we heard this morning, and, and time and time again, Pastor John will read these passages of law and grace, both contained in the Old Testament. God is a gracious God. God is also a, a God of wrath. But God doesn't change. That's one of the, 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 the key aspects of Him. He's, he is unchangeable. He's immutable. And so he is consistent, both in his 
wrath against sin and in His grace and mercy towards our God. Romans chapter 3 quotes verse 9 in our passage. Romans 3.14 speaks of the reality of God's wrath against our sin. It says in Romans 3.14 that their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And in the broader context, in verse 10, it says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Verse 9 speaks here of an open grave. An open grave. Verse 9 speaks of this. Their truth in their, there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. David here throws out the reality that's there. He speaks to the reality in the hearts of his enemies. But he also elsewhere speaks of the reality in his own life. And confession is vital in prayer. It's important for us to recognize that God's wrath is upon us and upon our sin. We need to come in faith on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. We are under His hatred if we have not come to Him. But He is gracious to show us chesed in Jesus Christ. And when we come to Him on the basis of God's chesed, His faithful love, we can come freely and boldly. And that's the secret sauce. That's the delish that fuels it all. We come to God in prayer. We have Him as our subject. And Hesed fuels the effectiveness of our prayer. Now finally, we start to get to David's petitions in verses 8 to 10. He says, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. There's lots of requests. Lots of petitions here. The first one is that he asks for wisdom. He says, lead me. He says, lead me. This is one of the things we need to pray for more. James 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. The New Testament equivalent of this in the Lord's Prayer is found in verse 13 of Matthew 6. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. That is a cry for wisdom. Sometimes we might not be fully aware of all the details. We may not know all of the particular dangers and pitfalls or even precautions that are required. Maybe you've faced a situation in your life where it seems like there is no clear road ahead of you. But you can pray. Verse 8, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Have you ever had to pray for someone going through terrible troubles? I mean catastrophic things happening in their life. Sometimes we feel at a loss of how to pray for them. Well, is this not a helpful thing for us to pray for. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Lead this person in your righteousness. Make your way straight before me. My road looks crooked. I don't know where I'm going. Help me, Lord. Lead me 
Direct me. Direct this person. Help them. What makes more sense in our anguish is to pray this prayer in verse 8. Lead me. And we see in, in verse 10, he asks for help against enemies. Now it's interesting what he does. He condemns them. He says, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their, op- their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Now this is not petty vengeance on behalf of David. We have to interpret this contextually. We need to understand that David is not a private citizen. But he is praying for God's honor to be upheld. I don't know if you find it hard. I think the modern church, I think the church throughout history has struggled to pray for God's wrathful justice Because we see our own sin. And we see how clearly that could be applied to us. But it's also something that we need to understand. Something that we need to pray for here on earth. As David does in verse 10. In order to see the blessing in verse 11. The refuge that he can take. He must see the end to evil. Let me ask you this. If you lived in a community with a serial killer, how could you sleep at night until he was caught? Would it not be right for you to pray that God would bring this man down, assuming it's a man, that he would catch him and that he would be punished? Do you cringe when you hear a father cry out for justice for his raped daughter? For his murdered son. That's not wrong. And let's understand that this is not just an Old Testament prayer. We want to bust that idea. We see it in the New Testament. In 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 6. It says this. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. We need to have a right conception of the God that we worship. Evildoers will not succeed. And the basis of our confidence is God. God is our confidence. And his justice and hatred of sin is a refuge for us. We can be confident that he will address justice. But let all, verse 11, who take refuge in you rejoice. Some of you are familiar with that statement. Be still and know that I am gone. Well, in the book of Romans, it puts it in its proper context. Because it speaks about... God's role. He says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Be still and know that I am God. The purpose of this is not for us to take on the role of God. We are not here as avengers, as we said last week. We're not trying to start our own little vigilante justice. We are to submit ourselves to God. He is a holy God. He is a God who has wrath against the evildoer. But he's also a God of mercy. Calls sinners to repentance in him. But he is not to be trifled with. Lastly, we see, fifthly, the comforts of prayer. The comforts of prayer. After we see the petitions that he has made, after we see the definition, after we see the, uh, the, the, the subject of prayer, we come to the comforts of prayer in verses 11 and 12. Now, what does he say? But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as 
with a shield. Now one of the misconceptions I think that we have when we come to prayer is that we just evaluate and we just apportion our time in prayer in relation to results. And this is one of the things, reasons why we struggle. We easily lose interest in prayer when we merely see it in terms of the results. Because God's timing is not ours. But what we need to see, prayer, and the value of prayer, is just as worship alone. The reality is that our prayers may not be answered how we want them to be. So you might think, well, is it a waste of time to pray? Of course not. Of course not. We have the privilege of worshiping our God and entering into His presence. And God's ways are higher than our ways. His holiness and His sovereignty will often overrule our prayers. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 55, verse 9, For as heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And prayer's chief blessing is that it changes things. Most especially, it changes us as we come into the presence of God, as we meditate, as we engage with God. We cannot emerge unchanged. God blesses us with joy and peace in His grace. Remember Philippians 4, verses 4 to 6 to 7. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say, pray to God and He'll give you whatever He wants. No. What Paul is saying is that our meditation on the Word of God, on who He is, even that is effectual to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Whatever the circumstances may be, whatever may be the outcome of our petitions, what is most important is that we are worshiping and engaging with God in prayer. And this comfort in prayer is expressed in two metaphors in these concluding verses. The first one we see is this, this spreading of protection. It's like, it's like the picture also used in the Old Testament of, of God as, as a hen, a mother hen covering her chicks. The second one is here, where he says, you favor him as with a shield. Shield. So these two metaphors are present as a comfort. God spreads his wings over us. As we call out to him, as we cry out to him, he brings his wings to shelter us, to, to protect us from that which is outside. And he speaks of a shield. Now, if you know anything about ancient warfare, the shield was tall and why to protect. Roman soldiers would often use them to advance towards the enemy and they would, they would create these, these battle formations where they had just a line of shields uh, in the front and then they had other shields over the top to protect them from arrows and they would just advance. And it was very intimidating because no matter what you threw at these Roman soldiers and they had spears coming out the front, they were protected on every side. They had soldiers. They advanced in these squares towards their enemy. They were protected. They were there. And that's the picture here. We have an all-encompassing, protecting God. Nothing gets through and affects us in our lives without His sovereign permission. We have an all-encompassing, protecting God. Richard Phillips, one of my favorite pastors, preachers, theologians, writers, had a conversation with his lady once. And she said to him, and on her reflection, she said only three things could ever happen to her in her life. The first thing is that God would bless you. The second thing is that you would experience trial. But she said, trial is good. According to God's word, all things work for good. And the third terrible thing that could perhaps happen to you is that you'd die, but then you'd go to heaven. Right? We need to think about our lives in those situations. Too often we're focused on the circumstances. And too often our prayers are 
seeking just to address the circumstances. But if we don't address God, we won't effectively understand our circumstances. We don't meditate if we don't adore God. It's not just fluff and filler. Okay, our Father in heaven, I'll be your name. Uh, you know, give us a stay our daily bread. Right? No. There's a purpose to it. Because as we reflect on God and His character and His promises, as we read through the scriptures and we see how God treated and was faithful to His people in the past, we can apply it to our present, to our current reality, and to the future that is to come. God is this shield that protects us. You know, when we hear, last year was the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and you, you guys had the delight of having uh, Pastor Hensworth Jonas come and, and, uh, and, and minister along with your pastor and celebrate uh, the great work of the Reformers like Martin Luther. But one of the things that we forget is what it must have been like to be Martin Luther. To stand up in front of all of the opposition and to stay with courage and conviction. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. And there's a story about Luther going to Augsburg and facing the Roman Catholic uh, Cardinal and before he went, the elector of Saxony, uh, Luther's patron, who provided him with a measure of safety, promised him safety. But as he was going in, one of the cardinal's officers confronted him. And he said, where will you find shelter when the elector of Saxony betrays you? And Luther's reply was based on this verse. He said to him, under the shield of God's protection. Better than the elector of Saxony, better than a full bank account, better than friends and family. God is our protection. God is our helper. Do you know this God that we're speaking about this morning? Do you have the ability to come to him and to help, ask him for help, knowing that you are a just recipient of his wrath, but knowing also that Jesus Christ has laid down his life so that you have the privilege and the permission to boldly come before you? If you don't know this, here's your opportunity. Cry out to God. Cast yourself on his mercy. He is a merciful God. He sent Jesus to bring salvation. And He is patient, but He is calling you to repentance. There is an appointment that is immovable in everyone's life. For it is appointed for every man to die, and after that to face the judgment. But while you have life, while you have breath, God has given you grace. What will you do with his mercy that's been extended to you? How will you use what he has given to you? Repent and believe. Trust in him. Look to him. Cry out to him for this joy and this mercy. If you're a Christian this morning, take comfort. Your God is just. He punishes sin and the evildoer. But he also shows mercy to us, sinners and evildoers. Let us reflect on him. Let us delight. Let us adore him. And thus address our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.